for tonight. Thank you, God, I thank you for our church. And God, I just ask that you please give us a tender heart to your word. And I ask that you please be with our pastor, God, strength more and fill in her spirit. And Lord, we love you. She's Jesus' name pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in the book of Ephesians, and we are back in our Wednesday night Bible study back in the book of Ephesians. And we're making our way through the book of Ephesians, just going verse by verse, phrase by phrase, chapter by chapter. Uh, I think this is the 10th sermon in the book of Ephesians. It's the third sermon in this chapter, and there will be one more sermon in this chapter before we move on. And there's just a lot in this in this book, and you know, there's no need to rush through it. We can take our time and uh, make sure we dissect it and learn it. And I hope you're learning. And we we haven't been in Ephesians in a little bit, so it's nice to be back. If you remember the last time we were in the book of Ephesians, we uh, went through verses one through six of Ephesians chapter four. Tonight we're going to go through verses. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we went, we went through verses 7 through 10 last time. Tonight we're going to go through verses 11 through 16, and uh, we're going to go ahead and just break it down and dissect it for you. But before we do that, I'd like to just show you a theme in this uh, short passage uh, in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, just so you understand what it is that the Apostle Paul is talking about and writing about. If you notice there in verse 11, the Bible says this, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. I want you to notice these words because this is kind of the theme of this uh, short passage here. He says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And the word edify means to build up. Uh, and he says that there is the edifying that needs to happen, the building up of the body of Christ. And of course, we know the body of Christ is uh, the church. He says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, and then notice again the emphasis, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's referring, and what he's referring to is the fact that, and the theme of this short passage here, it's all about growing, and it's about building up, and it's about spiritual growth, and it's about physical growth for the church as well. Uh, In verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, notice again the emphasis, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part. And notice again the theme, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And in these uh, several verses that we're looking at tonight, there is this theme. And there's really two themes. One theme is that of spiritual leadership. And again, if you look at verse 11, he gives a list of positions of spiritual leaders. But he's specifically talking about how spiritual leadership plays a role in the building up and in the growing and in the edifying of the local church. And we're not just talking about, uh, because sometimes when you talk about growth in the local church, people assume you're talking about growing physically, and and we're all obviously for that and fine with that and reaching people with the gospel and soul winning. But he's more than that talking about growing spiritually, 
how it is the spiritual leader's job to help you grow spiritually. And that's the theme. And I want you to uh, understand that as we uh, take the time to kind of break these things down. And if you're able to take notes, of course, I'd encourage you to take notes. I've got three points tonight or three headings as we break down uh, these uh, several verses here, these six verses. The first one is this. And the first thing we see, if you'd like to write it down, and on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write things down, is we see the position of spiritual leadership. And today there are actually those who teach that there, are, there is no spiritual leadership, that there really are no positions, that churches shouldn't have anybody who's ruling or in charge. There should be no pastors or deacons. It should just be everybody's equal as far. And obviously we're all equal in the sense that we're all sinners and we're all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But that everybody should just kind of have the same authority and there should be nobody leading. But this is not what the New Testament teaches. And in fact, the first thing that the Apostle Paul uh, emphasizes is the fact that there are different positions that have uh, existed uh, through time and even exist now in regards to the leadership of the local church. So we see the position of spiritual leadership. And he gives us five different positions here in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, And he gave some apostles, that's number one, and some prophets, that's number two, and some evangelists, that's number three, and some pastors, that's number four, and teachers, that's number five. So he emphasized, and we're going to take the time, we're going to take all five of these, and we're going to go through it and, and uh, explain it to you. Uh, but he emphasizes leadership, and really, he emphasizes leadership for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of the fact that everything rises and falls on leadership. Uh, if a church is going to succeed, if a church is going to grow spiritually or, or numerically, it's going to be as a result of the leadership and those who are put into those positions of uh, leadership. And that's not just the church, it's, it's, it's any area where a leader exists. Everything rises and falls on leadership. If, if you've got a business and it's succeeding, it's succeeding because of the person who's running that business. And if your business is failing, it's failing because uh, of you uh, uh, leading it in failure. If a church fails, it's, because, it's not because of Jesus. It's not Jesus failing. It's the spiritual leadership failing. So we understand that everything rises and falls in leadership. Now, the other reason that I believe the Apostle Paul emphasizes this idea of spiritual leadership in a text about spiritual growth is because of the fact that spiritual leaders, pastors and uh, deacons, which are not mentioned in this uh, list, but are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, they are there to help you go further faster. Spiritual leadership is there to help you grow in the Lord and to grow faster. Obviously, you can read the Bible, you can learn the Bible, you can study the Bible on your own, and you should. But we are here to help not to uh, take place of that, but to be part of that. You need to be reading the Bible and understanding and learning on your own. And then you come to church three times a week, and we teach you and explain Scripture to you, and we're just helping you grow in the Lord uh, faster. But let me break uh, just down some of these positions here uh, for you to understand. The first one is, of course, uh, what he mentions, apostles. Go, go with me to the book of uh, Luke, if you would, uh, and towards the beginning of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke chapter number 6, and I'll, I'll show you a couple of things about the apostles. Luke chapter 6, and look at verse number 12. Luke 6, six and verse 12, the Bible says this, and it came to pass in those days that he, now the he there is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, he went out into a mountain to pray, 
and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. Now, Jesus had hundreds and even at times thousands of people that were following him that were his disciples. He called the disciples, and out of that big group of disciples, the Bible says, and of them he chose twelve whom also he named apostles. So I want you to notice that when the original twelve apostles uh, uh, became apostles, the way that they became apostles is by the fact that they were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus chose the apostles. Now, uh, go to the book of Acts, if you would, Acts chapter number 9. And let me just say this, and, and I've, I've got a lot to cover tonight, so I don't want to spend the whole night on this idea of apostles. I actually preached an entire sermon about the apostles and the doctrines of the apostles uh, back when we were doing our uh, 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 Sunday night series through the book of Acts. And you can look that up on YouTube or on our website, just search apostles, and, and you'll find you know, my thoughts on that. And there's a lot that can go into the idea of the apostles. I just want to mention this, that in, in the beginning of the book of Acts, you have uh, Peter and the apostles uh, trying to replace Judas, who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And they gave all these qualifications as to, you know, we need to find a guy that does this and has this and has that. And I think their heart was in the right place. And this is my opinion, and I'll, I'll just say that. I don't think anybody knows dogmatically for sure. But, you know, I believe their heart was in the right place, but I think they were wrong in those qualifications, I think they were right in the sense that they were trying to do right, and they wanted to uh, make sure they didn't just put anybody into that position. But the problem with those qualifications set forth by Peter and the apostles there is that uh, Paul doesn't meet those qualifications. Paul wasn't at the baptism. He wasn't baptized by John the Baptist. He hadn't been with Jesus from the beginning. And the Bible is clear, super clear, that Jesus, you know, considered Paul an apostle. So we need to realize when we uh, read the book of Acts, and really when you read any, any narrative in the Bible, that sometimes just because you read about an event, about things that people did, that doesn't necessarily make it right. Uh, it's just, it's, it's correct in the sense that that's what they actually did, but it doesn't necessarily mean that what they did was the correct thing or the right thing. And that's what I believe we are seeing there in uh, Acts 1. Now in Acts 9, you have Jesus calling Paul into the ministry, and of course, also uh, just waking him up so that he'll get saved. Acts 9 and verse 3, the Bible says this, and as he, this is Saul, journey. Now remember, Saul is on a journey. He's on Damascus Road. He's going to uh, uh, bring persecution upon believers. He came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, and this is Jesus speaking, of course, and if you have a red letter edition Bible, these words will be in red, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? Now remember, at this time, Paul is persecuting the believers of this, uh, of this man named Jesus. And now Paul is on Damascus Road. He uh, sees this uh, light and he begins to talk to this uh, individual who appears to him. He says, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now, if you keep reading, you realize that Paul did not get saved on Damascus Road. He got saved three days later when a soul winner brought him the gospel. And we've preached about that and taught that uh, before. Uh, but I want you to notice that Paul did have Jesus 
appeared to him. He said, I am Jesus, and he appeared to the Apostle Paul. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. You're there in Acts. You're going to go past Romans into the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9. And I want you to notice what Paul kind of gives us his credentials for being an apostle. 1 Corinthians 9. Because a lot of people doubted Paul's apostleship. You might have noticed that theme as you read the New Testament. He's constantly defending his position as an apostle. I think that he probably had to do that because of Peter's and the earlier apostles' qualifications that they gave in Acts 1. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 9.1. He says, am I not an apostle? Question mark. Am I not free? And then he gives this as his qualification. Have not I seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? So I want you to notice that in the Bible, if you just look at the people that were actually became apostles, and let let me go ahead and say this as well, and I realize I'm giving you kind of a lot of info, and I'm not going to dig into it. You can listen to the sermons on on apostles if if you'd like later. In the Bible, we are told that that there were actually 70 apostles, not just 12. We are also told that there are chief apostles, or the 12. Sometimes they're just referred to as the 12. And you've got the 12, the 12 that are going to sit on 12 uh, thrones, uh, ruling uh, Jerusalem, uh, over or ruling the the 12 tribes of Israel, excuse me, during the millennial reign. You've got the 12 that are going to be the, uh, you've got the the new uh, heaven and earth, and you've got the gates and the different things that are all uh, 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 bringing honor to the fact that those were the 12 that were chosen. Of those 12, and again, we don't know for sure, I believe Paul's going to be one of those 12, all right? Now, maybe you might think it's Matthias or whoever, uh, but, you know, I think it's clear who Jesus chose to replace Judas. It was Paul, and Paul didn't meet those qualifications, but here's what Paul did meet. He had seen Jesus, and he was chosen by Jesus. And when you look at the apostles, the original 12 in Luke 6, isn't that basically how they became apostles? They were with Jesus, they'd seen Jesus, and then they were chosen by Jesus. So I, I believe, you know, you, say, you might ask, what does it take to become an apostle? Because today you have these religions, right? You have these Pentecostal charismatic churches, and they've got guys that get, get, they get up there and they call themselves apostle so-and-so. You know, apostle this and apostle that. Well, how do you become an apostle according to the Bible? Well, I believe according to the Bible, and I think it's clear. I mean, I would encourage you to study it out if you don't uh, agree with uh, my synopsis on it. But I think, look, to be an apostle, you have to have seen Jesus. You have to have seen the resurrected Christ. And you have to have been chosen, hand-chosen by Jesus. Because look, these apostles, this was a special position. They were given powers to be able to uh, do miracles, which Paul did, by the way. Uh, they, they, they were uh, instrumental uh, for the launch and the success of the local New Testament church. Now, I believe that the office of the apostle has been done away with. Go, you're there in 1 Corinthians 9. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have the the well-known resurrection chapter, right? And the chapter begins with this treatise on the resurrection of Christ. And Paul begins by giving us a list of everyone who had seen the resurrected Christ. We're not going to go into all that. I want you to notice what he says in verse number 8. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8. This is Paul speaking. And last of all, he, talking about Jesus, was seen of me also. Now remember, 
If in order to be an apostle, you had to have, number one, seen the resurrected Christ, and number two, been chosen by the resurrected Christ. And here Paul is saying, hey, all these people saw him. 500 at one time saw him. All these apostles saw him. And he lists them. The brothers of Jesus, they saw him. He lists all the people that saw Jesus. And then he says, and last of all, he was seen of me also. If he's saying, look, I'm the last person who saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus, uh, Paul even saw Jesus after he ascended up to heaven. Jesus made a special appearance after his ascension. If Paul is saying, I'm the last one that has seen Jesus, and you have to have seen Jesus and been chosen by Jesus to be an apostle, you know what that would make Paul? The last apostle. There's no more apostles. So apostle, whoever at all, had to have been uh, chosen by Jesus, had to have seen the resurrected Christ, and Paul said, I'm the last uh, person who saw the resurrected Christ. And the next time anybody sees Jesus, look, when people tell you, oh, I saw a vision of Jesus, they're lying. They're either lying to you, a devil, uh, because look, the next time anyone sees Jesus, we will all see Jesus. The Bible says that every eye shall behold him when he comes. The apostles, they were covenant. And then, of course, you have the New Testament covenant. And the apostles were men that, when you're reading the book of Acts, that's what you're reading. You're reading a transition for the man that God in those, that position could be done away with. So about it, apostles, and then he says prophets. You're there in 1 Corinthians 15. Go with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 14, if you would. 1 Corinthians 14, types of prophecy, and, and I, I think people don't really understand this, and, and it'd be in, it's good for you to, to get this, and I'll, I'll teach it to you the way it was taught to me when I was a young person in church, and it's this, some prophecy, and in fact, usually when we think of prophecy, this is what we think of, some prophecy is foretelling, right? It's foretelling the future. It's predicting the future. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read to you one verse, passages, and future. That is prophecy. And usually when we think of like the book of Revelation, we think of uh, uh, prophets that are... So need to understand this. Some prophecy is foretelling. And in the Bible, prophecy, sometimes it's just telling the truth. It's just preaching the truth. And I'll give you an example of that. And, and, and there's several examples we could show you. I'll just give you one. Proverbs 31. You're familiar with Proverbs 31, right? The famous virtuous woman passage. Proverbs 31 begins this way. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. I mean, there's nothing that's telling you like this is going to happen in the future, yet it's referred to as a prophecy. Why? Because it's fun to look for. And when you get married, this is what you ought to be looking for. And that's a good way to think about it. And you can just think of it as preaching. Just like what I'm referencing scripture for doing. Acts 8, verse 5. Then Philip, you're in Acts 21. Flip back to Acts chapter 8 if you would. Look at verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So notice, he's going down to the city of Samaria, and uh, to a city that's not uh, been reached with the gospel, and he preached Christ unto them. And uh, notice verse 12, same chapter. And when they believed Philip's preaching... The things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So notice, he's preaching, he's baptizing, he's getting people saved. Look at verse 26, same chapter. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, 
and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of our treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. You're familiar with the story. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to the chariot. Notice verse 35, just for sake of time. He begins to talk to this uh, Ethiopian eunuch in verse 35. Then Philip, this is what Philip's known for in the Bible. I mean, this is pretty awesome, I think. If you're going to be known for something in the Bible, this is a great thing to be known for. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. I mean, every time you're you're seeing uh, Philip in the book of Acts and he's just preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, reaching people with the gospel. Notice verse uh, 40. But Philip, at the end of that story, by the way, he's caught away of the spirit and he goes to Caesarea. Acts 8.40, but Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And then we meet him back in Acts 21 in Caesarea, and he's called Philip the Evangelist. So notice, what's an evangelist? An evangelist is someone who brings the gospel. I mean, he went to Samaria, and he uh, preached the gospel to that city. You know, on Saturday, we had 166 evangelists in San Francisco, California. 166 people who went down there for the purpose of preaching the gospel and getting people saved. Now, I want you to understand this, okay? There's the position, and then there are those who act in that position. Here's what I mean by that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, and I'd like you to go there if you would. 2 Timothy, if you, if you uh, uh, find the T-books, they're all clustered together. 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus. I believe that there's actually a position of an evangelist, which is why Paul mentions them in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, here's what I think. I think that what the Bible refers to as an evangelist is what you and I would call a missionary. Someone who has basically given their life to go and to preach the gospel in different locations, get people saved, baptized, and of course establish local churches there. Maybe even someone who's not necessarily a pastor, Uh, but someone who has given their life to that. That's the position. But notice there's also, just like the prophets, there's a position of the prophet, which is done. But then in the New Testament, you've got prophets still that are prophesying, and Paul's talking about it. Just like the apostles, it's a position that's done. Notice 2 Timothy 4, 5. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Notice what he says. He's talking to pastors in this passage. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. So Paul tells Timothy, who's a pastor, to do the work of an evangelist. He says, I know you're not an evangelist. I know you're a pastor. But in that position, you still need to do the work of an evangelist, which is obviously soul winning, which is obviously church planning. You know, I'm a pastor uh, of a church. I'm the pastor of Verity Baptist Church. But yet, while I'm pastoring this church, this church has led soul winning events and missions trips and soul winning marathons. We planted several other churches. We planted uh, four other churches other than uh, the church uh, you're sitting in right now. You know, that's us, that's me doing the work of an evangelist. Now, am I a missionary on the foreign field? No, I'm a pastor, but the Bible tells the pastors to do the work of an evangelist. Look, you should do the work of an evangelist. We should all be doing the work of an evangelist, which is just being a soul winner and reaching people with the gospel. But there is a position of an evangelist, an ordained position. You know, and an example of that is Brother Matthew Stecky. He's not a pastor. He's an evangelist. He's been ordained into that position, which is why he baptizes, which is why he is able to lead uh, those churches, even though he's not necessarily 
uh, acting as a pastor, he's acting in a position as an evangelist. So we have the uh, apostles and the prophets and the evangelists. Then we have the pastors. I got to hurry this thing up. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 5. You're there in 2 Timothy 4. Just flip back. Do me a favor and, and keep your place there in 2 Timothy also. I know you kept your place in 1 Corinthians, and I need you to keep it there. We're going to come back to it. But go to 2 Timothy. Uh, keep your place in 2 Timothy also. And go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse 17. And then you have the pastors, right? 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders. Now, and I, I don't have time to prove this to you. You can study this out on your own. These three terms, elder, Pastor, bishop, they're used interchangeably in Scripture. They're all talking about the same position. It's, it's you know, the pastor of a church or the, the ruler of a church, the Bible calls him, the, the spiritual leader, the main leader of the church. Let the elders that, notice, you, you know, notice the word, rule well. They're, they're, they're called to rule. They're called to be in charge. And, and the word bishop means overseer, or those who take the oversight. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So notice that a pastor or an elder or a bishop, those are all the same, different terms for the same position. And I believe that those three, and I'll preach a sermon about this one day, but I believe that those three positions really uh, teach us three different aspects of the position of a pastor. The idea of being an elder, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an old person because Paul was calling Timothy an elder, and then Paul told Timothy, Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. So Timothy is obviously a young man that people could have despised. The word elder is referring to the fact that you're spiritually mature, that you've spiritually grown in the Lord. Then the word bishop means overseer, or administrator, that's the ruling aspect, that's the systems, that's the organization, that's the calendar, that's, you know, those things, you know, the soul winning maps that we give you, all, all the things that we do as far as organization around there, that's the bishop aspect, and then the pastor is the personal aspect, that's the counseling uh, uh, you know, sessions. That's the visits to the hospital. That's the having people over in your house. That, that aspect of spending time with people and pastoring them and being with them. So you've got these three different titles that are used interchangeably, but they emphasize different focuses of the ministry, and they're called rulers. They are the spiritual leaders. So you got the pastor. Then you have the teachers. If you wouldn't, keep your place there in 2 Timothy. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12. I'm running out of time. 1 Corinthians 12, I want to get this all in because I don't want to preach three sermons in Ephesians 4, all right? So I want to get this done in the next week. 1 Corinthians 12, then you have the teachers. Now, the teacher, I believe this position would basically encompass all the ordained positions. So there are three ordained positions in, the, in church. You've got the pastor, who's an ordained leader. You've got the deacon, who's an ordained leader, and, and he talks about that in the New Testament as well. And then you also have the evangelist as an ordained leader. And, um, you know, I believe that all of those serve as a teacher. But, but not only that, I, I believe that even just men in the local assembly can serve as a teacher and as a preacher. Because remember, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's giving instructions for a men's preaching night, Right? He's expecting that there are other men in the congregation that are going to be able to stand up and preach. And by the way, I'm thankful that at Verity Baptist Church, we've got some guys that can stand up and preach. You know, and, I, and I'm able to 
go to Fresno and do different things from time to time and, and have the guys step in and preach, and they do a great job. I mean, our, our, our guys who aren't in full-time ministry, you know, they can out-preach some of the, you know, the average pastor in this country. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. Uh, so, so a teacher can be anyone who's giving, you know, teaching the Word of God in the local church. It could be an ordained position or it could just be just a regular guy who has a gift to teach or preach or do those things. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God hath set some in the church. Notice the positions. First apostles. Does this sound like Ephesians 4? Secondarily prophets. Thirdly teachers. And again, I think that's referring to pastors, deacons, evangelists, guys in the church that can preach. And then after that, miracles and gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. And of course, I preached entire sermons on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and what's been done away with, what hasn't, and proven all that. Look at verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? So you've got these different positions. So you've got the positions. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, teachers. And I believe teachers includes pastors, evangelists, deacons, and just regular guys that are able to stand up and preach uh, the Word of God uh, in church. Go, go, go back to Ephesians chapter 4, if you would. Keep, continue to keep your place in 2 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, and uh, we'll try to go through this fast, all right? So number one, we saw the position of spiritual leadership. And Paul emphasized three office, uh, excuse me, five offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Then we have the purpose of spiritual leadership. So he tells us about the position of spiritual leadership. Then he tells us what's the purpose of spiritual leadership. Why has God given you spiritual leadership? Because that's the wording. He says, and he gave some apostles. Some got apostles. Some got prophets. Some got uh, evangelists. You know, Manila, the people in Manila, they, they didn't get an apostle. They didn't get a prophet, but they got an evangelist. Some got pastors. You all got a pastor. Whether you like him or not, you're stuck with him, all right? He's the pastor. And he said he gave some teachers. There are some churches where they don't have a pastor. And maybe they just got men in the church that are able to teach, you know. That obviously should be a temporary thing if, if a pastor dies or something like that. But he said, I've given you these positions of, uh, of leadership. What's the purpose of spiritual leadership? Well, notice verse 12. He says, here's why I gave them to you. For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. He said, I gave you spiritual leadership to accomplish these three things in your life. The first one is the perfecting of the saints. Now, what is that referring to? Go back to 2 Timothy, if you would. I ask you to keep your place there. Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The word perfect in the Bible, and I've, I've told you this before, it's not the same word that you and I use. Today, when we use the word perfect in modern terms, we think of something without error, something like, oh, it's just right, it's perfect, there's nothing wrong with it. In the Bible, and even in modern terms, Brother Graham was telling me that there's a, I should have texted you about that, there's a legal term, right? What's that legal term? Perfecting a lean. Even, even in modern days, we, that term is still used. But the word, it means to complete something. It means to bring something into completion. It means to be complete, lacking no essential detail. That's what the Bible says here. So when he says, look, I gave you spiritual leadership for the perfecting of the saints, he's saying, look, one of the goals of the pastor is to help Christians become completely equipped for the Christian life, that you're not lacking anything, that you've got everything you need to live out the Christian life. Are you there in 2 Timothy 3? Look at verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
We've been talking a lot about that on Sunday nights. And is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. For what? For doctrine. For what? For reproof. Look, doctrine is the right thing. For reproof is telling you, you know, the wrong thing. For correction is telling you how to make the wrong thing the right thing. And for instruction is telling you how to do it the right way. He says, look, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, someone in your life is supposed to be taking all the Scripture that God gave you, that God gave us, and using that to, to bring, to teach you doctrine, to reprove you when you need it, to correct you when you need it, to instruct you when you need it. Why? Look at verse 17. That the man of God may be perfect, may be complete. You say, well, what does that mean? Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. My job as a pastor is to equip you, to make sure you've got all the tools you need. My job is to make sure that you have everything, that you understand everything, that you know everything you need to know to live out the Christian life. So that's why we make all these documentaries, right? That's why we have soul winning seminars. That's why I preach all these theories about winning the race of life and a faithful family and finances and soul winning. Why do we do that? Why do we have all these sermons with all these uh, different... uh, 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 um, uh, uh, subjects, it's because my job is to make sure that you're fully equipped, that you're complete and perfect, truly furnished unto all good work. But that's not it. My job is to make sure you've got all the tools. And then my job is also to motivate and mobilize you to get to work. Because notice, he says, for the perfecting of the saints, then he says, for the work of the ministry. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Do you understand the work of the ministry? It's like no other work. I mean, it's not, it's not like volunteering for any other organization. It's not like, and what you do at work Monday through Friday is important, but the work of the ministry, it's greater than that because we're laboring together with God. We're co-laboring with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul said this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Notice, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And, and I'll just go ahead and say this. And I'm, you know, I'm preaching about this just because it's in the text. We usually, every November at Verity Baptist Church, we have a time where we get people involved and try to get people into the work of ministry. But look, in your Christian life, part of spiritual growth is that you come here, you sit, and you get equipped, right? We teach you, we feed you, we help you, we give you the tools, we help you know, we help you understand. But eventually, you ought to continue to sit. Eventually, you ought to get up and do something. You ought to serve. And you know, you you can look around and, and look at the different people that are serving around here and figure out, hey, you know, maybe I can help with the cleaning. Maybe I can help with the audio video ministry. Maybe, you know, we've got all ushers and we've got all sorts of different positions and things that people can do. And, and, and why do we do that? Why do we do that? Every November, we have a worker appreciation Sunday. And every November, we put out a list with names of individuals that volunteer at a church. And I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been here for any length of time, but that list gets bigger and bigger every year. I mean, this last year, we had, I think, a hundred names 
Our church has 200 people in it. It had 100 names on that list. You say, why would you do, why would you organize this massive structure of volunteers? You know, why not just hire someone to clean the building? Why not just hire someone to do this? Why do that? Well, you know, honestly, part of the reason is because I understand that for you to grow spiritually, I need to involve you in the work of the ministry. So, yeah, sometimes it might be easier to just pay people to do it. But look, sometimes it's better to just involve as maybe as possible. You know, my, my goal is one day to have 90% of our church, 95% of our church on that list of volunteers. You say, why? Because my job as a pastor is to, uh, for the perfecting of the saints, to equip you and make sure you've got everything you need for your marriage and for your child rearing and for your finances and for your health and for your personal life and your emotional life and, and, and get the sin out of your life. My job is to equip you and then my job is also to, to, to put you to work. The work of the ministry. So we have individual growth, then we have corporate service, helping Christians serve the Lord in their Christian lives. And then notice the third thing. He says, this is back in Ephesians 4.12, if you would, for the perfecting the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And here's what I know. When Christians are growing personally, when there's individual growth, and when they're serving corporately, the church will be healthy. And when the church is healthy, it will naturally grow. So he says, look, he gave you spiritual leadership for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and all that's going to produce the edifying of the body of Christ. Now notice the product of spiritual leadership, and I I got 10 minutes, we got to finish this up. We talked about the position of spiritual leadership, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We talked about the purpose of spiritual leadership, the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. Let's talk thirdly tonight about the product of spiritual leadership. What does spiritual leadership when it's not failing, right? Because everything rises and falls on leadership. When, When leadership, spiritual leadership the pastor, the staff, those in charge and in positions of leadership, when they are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing, what will the result be? What will the product be? Well, I want you to notice Paul tells us, the first thing is you'll have a united church. Look at verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Now look, when you get 100 people to minister together, you're going to have friction, right? It Look, would it be easier to have one person playing an instrument or, or, or have 12 or 15 people playing instruments? You're going to have friction, right? Would it be easier to have one guy sitting back there in the sound room or is it easier to involve, you know, six guys that rotate, you know, those positions or seven guys, however many guys we, we have back there? You're going to have friction, would it be easier to just have three guys to take the offering and do all the usher, or to have the, the eight guys and nine guys and rotate them in and out? You're going to have friction. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Now, wh- why do we involve so many people? If, well, if you can just do it with one pianist, if you can just do it with one sound guy, if you can just do it with three ushers, if you can just do it with, with uh, one or two cleaners, why do you have 30 cleaners? Why do you have two groups that come in on uh, Monday and rotate them and two groups that come in on Saturday and rotate them and two groups that come in on Sunday and rotate? Well, part of it, we have it that way so people don't get burnt out. The other one is because we're trying to involve as many people in the work of the ministry. But when you do that, you're going to have friction. So the pastor's job is to make sure that we're not just working you. Because look, a leader can push and push and push and work and work and work. And the whole thing can fall apart if he's also not teaching you, you know, spending weeks on sermons about bearing the hatchet. And about not being bitter. 
If he's also not teaching you about not gossiping and not backbiting. If he's also, because look, we need to have unity. We need to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what is the product of spiritual leadership? It is a united church. We need to have unity. And look, by the way, that's why for me, if there's one thing that I just, I have no patience for and that I will come down hard, it's when cliques start forming, when you start having, oh, it's just us four and no more, and we don't like those four and no more, and you sit on that side of the auditorium, and you, look, you're going you're gonna to see Pastor Jimenez get all up in your business. If you try to make Verity Baptist Church into high school Baptist Church, because we need unity. We can't have people just fighting with each other and gossiping about each other. And Look, that will ruin this church. He says, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and then notice, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. So what is the product of spiritual leadership? Well, one is a united church, but secondly, it's a doctrinally sound church. He says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto a complete man, unto an equipped man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Someone who's growing. The idea is that you've got a little babe in Christ and they're growing, right? Just like physically. Some of us stop growing a little faster than others. But, you know, just like physically, you've got a baby and they grow and grow and grow. He says, look, our job is to take spiritual babies and some, my wife and I, sometimes we joke around and talk about you know, people having issues in church. And it's like, yeah, they're, they're kind of like the spiritual toddlers, you know. They're gossiping and fighting, you know. We just got to help them grow a little bit. They're spiritual teenagers. We got to help them grow, mature a little bit, get, get a little more mature in their cry. He says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He, notice that we henceforth be no more children. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Say, Pastor, why are you preaching these doctrinal sermons on Sunday night? It's my job to make sure you are doctrinally sound. That, look, that you're not carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight. The word slight means subtle, deceiving of men. And cunning means the ability to be sly, the ability to be deceptive, craftiness, talking about scheming, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. This is why the Bible says, try the spirits, whether they be of God. This is why the Bible says, search the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Our job, look, will we'll be, you say, how do you know when you're doing a good job? How do you know when you're doing a good job? When we have a church that's united, we're doing a good job. If we have a church that's divided, and some are saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, then we're, that's not good. When we're doctrinally sound, and obviously not everybody's going to agree 100% on everything. Someone said if you get three Baptists together, you'll have four opinions, and I've found that to be true, you know? But on the main issues, on the major issues, we are on the same page. We, we believe in the King James Bible, and we believe in eternal security, and we believe in soul winning and separation, and whatever. We need a doctrinally sound church. Then the third thing that a that the spiritual leadership would produce if they're doing their job right is a compassionate church. Because look, a united church that's doctrinally sound could be dangerous. I mean, if we're all united, we're the greatest. I mean, we're Verity Baptist Church. And look, and I'm proud of being Verity Baptist Church. I'm glad, you know, to be part of this church. It's not because of me, it's because of all of you. And you guys make this church great. But you know, a church that's united and doctrinally sound, we try every spirit. We're like the, the, the church of Ephesus and we tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, as found them liars. 
and has borne his patience for my name's sake, has labored, has not fainted, but then we lose our compassion, just like the church at Ephesus, and we stop reaching people with the gospel? That's a dangerous church. In fact, remember, they almost lost uh, their candlestick as a result. Notice the compassionate church, Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. He said, look, it's, it's a church that's compassionate. They're, 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 yeah, we're, we're not going to stop speaking the truth, but we're going to do it with a broken heart. We're gonna t- look, when people t- sometimes the truth hurts. Isn't that true? When someone tells you the truth, it's because they love you. Do you understand that it would be easier to lie to you? It'd be easier to let you go just making mistakes, doing the wrong thing? So the product of a spiritual church is a united church, a doctrinally sound church, a compassionate church. Then notice verse 15 and 16. We'll finish up right here. He says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up. That's the theme, right? Growth. Into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, I believe that so far in this passage, the context has been about spiritual growth. The members of the church, the pastor, the staff, we're all growing spiritually. We're maturing spiritually. We're getting better in our Christian walk. But then he says this. Verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. And I know that's really complicated wording there, but he says this, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And I believe what he's saying is this, a church that is united, doctrinally sound, compassionate, will be a healthy church. And a healthy church will grow naturally. See, he says, look, you want the secret to grow numerically? He says, grow spiritually. He said, I gave you spiritual leadership that they might equip you for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for individual growth, so that you guys can work together and have a healthy church that's united, doctrinally sound, and compassionate. And he says, let me tell you something. When, when something is healthy, it will grow. I mean, isn't the Bible often referred to as an organism like a body? When you take a little baby and and they're a healthy baby, you're feeding them, they're getting their nutrients, you know, they're just going to naturally grow. Do you understand what I'm saying? If if you have a yard and and you're you're trying to grow grass, right? And, and And you're putting seed down, you're putting fertilizer down, you're making sure it's watered, you're making sure the sun, you know, if it's if it's healthy, it'll grow. You don't have to sit there at your yard and be like, come on, grass, grow, 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 come on. You can do it. If it's not growing, there's something wrong. Maybe you're not getting enough sun. Maybe there's too much shade. Maybe you haven't watered in a while. Maybe you need fertilizer. If, if it's not growing, there's something wrong. And here's what he's saying. The church is the same way. If a church isn't growing, there's something wrong. Now, you know, obviously there are times when you've got people freaked out with the coronavirus and you're going to have low attendances. I get that. <laughs> Safety's of the Lord, by the way. But, 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 but the point is this, that generally speaking, generally speaking, if a pastor and spiritual leadership is doing the right thing and they're equipping the saints, they're uh, perfecting the saints, they're doing the work of the ministry, they're doing the edifying of the body of Christ, and the church is united and it's growing, it's talking sound and it's compassionate, the thing will grow naturally. Now, it's not going to grow like Joel Osteen's church because that, you know, there's unnatural growth, right? Like steroids. All right? So, but naturally speaking, a church will just grow naturally. It'll increase in the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Because a healthy church will be a growing church. 
And then, and then Paul's, his whole thing, he's telling the church at Ephesus is this. God gave you spiritual leadership to keep you healthy. God gave you spiritual leadership to keep you healthy. Now let me let you in on a little secret, and I've got to finish up, I'm done. Over the last 10 years of ministry, what I've noticed and what my wife has noticed as we've served as a pastor and pastor's wife is that usually when people begin to be unhealthy spiritually, the person they want the least to do with is the person, is the pastor or the pastor's wife who God gave you to keep you spiritually healthy. So when you're in sin... When you start getting backslidden, when you start getting bitter, when you start getting angry, when you start getting upset, when you want to start talking crap about the pastor's wife or talking crap about the pastor, look, realize that's the person that God gave you to help you. So don't turn them into an enemy. Look, because the pastor sometimes is going to correct you. He's going to tell you things you don't, for the correcting, right? Reprove.